Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. There are many sites on Earth that play the role in human spaceflight. The Mission Control Building in Houston, Texas, where flight engineers communicated with the Apollo astronauts on the moon. Or even the grassy field in southeastern Russia, where Yuri Gargarin landed to end his mission as the first person in space. But Hutchinson, Kansas, isn't one of these sites. No spacecraft engineering happened here, like in Huntsville, Alabama. No rocket engine testing happened here, like in Purlington, Mississippi. There's not even a historic exploration-related radio telescope here, like in Parks, Australia. Despite this, Hutchinson, a town of 40,000 people, is home to the Cosmosphere, a massive space museum. The Cosmosphere boasts an enormous collection of spacecraft, including the largest collection of Soviet space hardware anywhere outside Russia. How did all of these space artifacts end up in the middle of Kansas? To find out, I visited Hutchinson to talk to Cosmosphere curator Shannon Wetzel. I think some of our brochures say, why not Kansas, right? (laughs) Um, The story of the Cosmosphere is more or less the right place at the right time. Wetzel says that the museum has had many decades to be in the right place at the right time. Hello, my name is Shannon Wetzel, and I am the curator here at the Cosmosphere. The Cosmosphere's first iteration was a star projector and folding chairs set up at the Kansas State Fairgrounds in 1962 by a woman named Patty Carey. She was inspired by the launch of Sputnik and ultimately wanted to set up a space science center in the Midwest. The volunteers we have who knew her personally, I did not know her personally, have pretty much called her a very nice arm twister. You didn't say no to Patty Carey. And that planetarium grew to what you see now. By the late 1970s, Patty Carey was making plans to transform the planetarium into the Kansas Cosmosphere and Discovery Center. The collection as we know it started in the late 1970s. NASA is looking to, I hate to use the word unload, but looking to get some hardware out there for the public to see. And the Cosmosphere was beginning its first expansion So we had the space and the connections. That's how we wound up collecting space hardware. The Cosmosphere was in the right place, a big building in the Midwest, and the right time, the late 1970s. The era was a strange time for space exploration. It was after the Apollo program, but before the space shuttle. The Smithsonian Air and Space Museum opened in Washington, D.C. in 1976, and I get the sense that a whole bunch of space artifacts that didn't make the cut for that museum ended up in Hutchinson. The Smithsonian and NASA, I mean, they want to get stuff, I say stuff, artifacts, priceless artifacts out for the public to see everywhere. And maybe also that's a sign of their success that they have gotten into the Midwest and it's been a priority. And we are so grateful to the Smithsonian. I don't know if you noticed on our labels how many of our items on display are from them. And we're just grateful to be, I believe we are the only Smithsonian affiliate in Kansas. Looking carefully at the collection, you also see another pattern. Hardware from missions that didn't go exactly as planned. There's a heavily damaged Mercury boilerplate capsule from the Mercury Atlas One mission. 
There's Liberty Bell 7, another Mercury capsule that was the U.S.'s second human spaceflight mission in 1961. The astronaut survived, but the capsule sank into the ocean and wasn't recovered until 1999. And then there's the Apollo 13 command module, Odyssey, which was restored and added to the museum in 1995. At the end of the Apollo 13 mission, the astronauts were home safe. It was fantastic. And then it was viewed more as a failure than a success. Apollo 13 was displayed in France. It wasn't viewed as something that should be around here necessarily. And so, yes, it was on display in France for a while, and then our guys restored it. I can't imagine any museum turning away the Apollo 13 command module today. But it is the Cosmosphere's ethos to say yes to an unwanted, unrestored artifact, even if that artifact is sitting under the water or somewhere in France. They see the investment in the recovery and the restoration as well worth the effort to add it to their collection. But there's also a bigger point that the museum is making with the collection as a whole. Space exploration is as much about the failures as it is about the successes. I believe that Apollo 13 had come up with the contingency plan before. It wasn't on the fly. And in a way, it was testing their contingency plan, and it went wonderful. They got home safely. We discuss a lot now about how it seems in our culture there's a fear of failure. We are afraid to fail, or if something doesn't work the first time, that means that idea should be discarded. And I think that that's not what got us to the moon. That's not what made our space program successful. So without meaning to, that's kind of become one of our catchphrases around here. We don't want our campers, our students to be afraid to fail. But the collection isn't just made up of American space hardware. The Cosmosphere also boasts the largest collection of Soviet space artifacts anywhere outside of Russia. And this fills in the sizable gaps of how most other space museums present the space race. The Cosmosphere team, which included Patty Carey, started obtaining Soviet space hardware in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Again, right place at the right time. The Soviet Union was crumbling. They were looking to get rid of some of their artifacts. We worked through a broker and we were able to obtain them. So they are part of our collection. They are not loaned pieces. Why the decision to try and collect them? Why didn't other museums try to in the same way that you did? I think that our early leaders were very visionary in what we could become and recognized that, in a sense, we were only telling half the story. Half of the Space Race Gallery is colored red and filled with Soviet space objects and text about the Soviet human spaceflight program. And the other half is blue, telling the American story. Our gallery is set up particularly well in the sense that you get a comparison. We split the gallery in a sense where you can see this is kind of what was going on in the Soviet Union at the time. This is what the Americans were doing. I think that our gallery does a really good job of comparing the two in a linear way. So you can see, oh, okay, during the Mercury program and here's the Vostok program. The effect is striking. The Cosmosphere is not a design museum, but by putting the artifacts from two different superpowers close to one another, you get an appreciation for the subtle and not-so-subtle differences in the industrial design. Compare the design language of the Soviet Lukonoid moon rover on display at the museum with the American Mars rovers that Americans might be more familiar with. 
and you can see the different ways each program approached the problems of surviving in space, even without the color coordination. Wetzel's favorite Soviet artifact is the Lunasphere, a copy of a soccer ball-shaped device carried by Luna 2, whose only purpose was to cover its crash-landing site on the moon with little pendants embossed with images of the hammer and sickle. The Soviets sent the Lunasphere, and it's just a small ball that, upon landing, it has a small explosive in it, and all of these little, our gallery calls them cosmic calling cards. All of these cosmic calling cards go all over the surface of the moon. What a nice little, just such a, a metaphor for the Cold War. It's a little stick in the eye. Wetzel said that it's becoming increasingly difficult to teach younger generations about the political context of the space race. After all, it's been 30 years since the Berlin Wall fell. It's very difficult to explain. I would even say the Cold War is kind of difficult to explain because, first of all, they didn't live through it. I don't know if you did, but, I mean, I was on the tail end of that. It wasn't black and white. There was so much gray, and I think that's the difficult part, especially you've seen our gallery. It's pretty big. I mean, a 45-minute tour down there, you just barely make it to the mm -hmm. shuttle, and that's if you're rushing. So it's difficult to portray those ideas in a short amount of time to a younger audience. No matter what you do, historically, it gets wrapped up nice and neat. As we change here on Earth, so too does the way we teach the story of spaceflight. Wetzel gave me an example of the list of items humans have left on the moon, a list that includes everything from the propagandistic lunosphere pendants to actual trash left there by the Apollo astronauts. I did a tour with our campers the other day. We do a collection tour, and I was telling them that they were appalled. I was like, wow, the generational difference. They were appalled at what was left. What? We left? We trashed the moon? And I'm like, we did. This is one of the reasons I will always keep coming back to space museums. The environmental consciousness that the Apollo program itself sparked by its images of a tiny, fragile, borderless Earth now gets the chance to reevaluate Apollo anew. And that's just one of the ways that the Cosmosphere, free from a specific location, can tell the story of human space exploration better than a site-specific museum. Visiting the Johnson Space Flight Center in Houston, Texas, visitors learn how that site played a role in the larger Apollo missions. Visiting the Parkes Observatory in Australia, you can learn about how that radio telescope was instrumental in broadcasting the famous images of Neil Armstrong stepping onto the moon to the rest of the world. But the Cosmosphere allows visitors to take a step back. This has been Museum Archipelago. Hi, it's Ian again. Since you've listened all the way to the end, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're a fan of Museum Archipelago. Join other fans by subscribing to Club Archipelago. It's a not-so-secret club that gives you access to special bonus features, like longer versions of some of my interviews, my take on the museum industry, and insider tours of museums all around the world. All with the same humor and quality you've come to expect from Museum Archipelago. Join today for $2 a month on patreon.com slash museumarchipelago and get Museum Archipelago logo stickers mailed straight to your door. That's patreon.com slash museumarchipelago to join Club Archipelago. You'll find a full transcript of this episode, along with show notes, at museumarchipelago.com. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. If this is your first show, don't forget to subscribe for free in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. And next time, bring a friend.